Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. If you look around our world and listen to our world, you would acknowledge that we are desperately seeking for individual identity. It's probably at a crisis level. What is seemingly not true is that we're not seeking for collective identity as much as we are individual identity. I want to say at the very outset, there's, there's nothing wrong with a quest for self-understanding. I've been in that quest for 62 years. Well, maybe the first couple of years of my life I wasn't in that quest, but pretty early on I was in a quest for self-understanding. It's a good thing to attempt to find ourselves, to seek our purpose. That's a good thing. But my question as we start this three-part series on identity, my question is this. Are we actually asking the right question from the wrong starting point? Are we asking the right question from the wrong starting point? To put it another way, if we're trying to find ourselves and have complete understanding, perhaps the approach is not an exclusive focus on self, but a focus on what self ought to be. To evaluate our identity in this series, I chose to start at the beginning. There is a famous phrase that comes from the Westminster Confession. You've probably heard it before, especially if you were raised in that tradition. You could quote it quickly. The chief end of humanity or man is to know God and enjoy him forever. 
let me put it differently. The chief way to understand ourself is to know God and to enjoy him forever. That actually is the proper starting point. So in the Genesis narrative that we just read this morning, we hear uh, several things. I'm not going to try to explicate each item in that section. But what we hear is God saying, let us make human beings in our own image. What that means, we'll just touch on. But what it means for sure is, we're not our own. What it also means for sure is, if we have deep self-understanding, it must be attached to the creator whose image we're made in. Second thing you notice, or perhaps you noticed in the narrative, is that God said, let us create mankind in our own image and let them be the rulers, shall we say governors, we could use a lot of words, shall we say caretakers, over all creation. In other words, God made humankind in his image, and he gave humankind a responsibility to be caretakers, to be governors, to be rulers over the creation that he had made. Third, you'll notice that in the narrative, the writer says that God made us in his image after his likeness, male and female, he made them. So I will make a categorical statement that you may agree with or maybe some of you feel queasy about. That is this. The full image of God cannot be found in men alone. Period. The text tells us that we were made male and female, and together maleness and femaleness reflect the image of God. The fourth thing uh, that you notice is that God told these human beings that they were to be blessed. Matter of fact, he gave them a blessing, and it almost sounds like a command. And the blessing is, I bless you so that you may multiply. I bless you so that you may fill the earth. I bless you so that you may subdue the earth. I bless you so that you can create new governors of my world. And I give you, says God, stewardship over my creation. Now, that is um, a hideous reduction of the passage we just read. But I tried to extract major themes to make a point. So what is the central message of this passage that we just read? The central message of this story, it's not about science 
or seven literal days or any of the other controversy. It's about God and humanity. That's what it's about. It's about God and humanity. It's about God and the image of God in humanity. That's what it's about. So listen to the way the narrative flows. Among other things, God says, let the land produce X, Y, and Z. All these things. Let it produce. And then the next phrase is, and so it was. Let it be, and so it was. But an interesting turn of phrase comes when humanity enters the picture. Then God says, let us create human beings in our own image and likeness. The language changes. Not it was, but let us do this to reflect ourselves. You see, the first command or the first statement related to the earth, that command or statement is beautiful. It's the bedrock of our cosmos, but it's impersonal. It's about matter. It's about stuff. It's about plants. It's about animals. It doesn't have the personal quality that the next statement does because the second statement concerning humanity, let us create humans in our own image and likeness, that second statement is related to personal beings. An entirely different form of language. We are, according to God, the vice regents over all creation. We are, according to God, God's special, unique creation. We are uniquely gifted to be rulers of God's world. So now, having done that overview, let's ask this salient question. If God made us in his own image, what are the characteristics that we have or should have as it relates to God's image? This is a topic for a book, not a sermon. But let me suggest a few things. What does it mean to be made in God's image? The first word is personality. Attributes similar to God. That's what we have. We have knowledge, but knowledge that produces reason. We don't just have knowledge. Animals have knowledge concerning their habitat. And they react with that knowledge concerning their habitat. It's intuitive. Our knowledge is of a different form. We're given knowledge 
as a gift, and we use that knowledge that we're given to think about knowledge itself, to, shall we say, think about thinking. And with that knowledge, we think about which decisions we ought to make and which decisions we ought not to make. It's a very complicated, high intellectual kind of knowledge. And it's reflective of God. We deliberate, we love, and we have free will. We have, shall we say, personalities. The second thing that is reflected in us that is the image of God might fall into the category, not just of personality, but of morality. As the reflected image of God is in us, it means that we have freedom and we have responsibility. In other words, we're held to a standard, a moral standard, and we are accountable for the free will decisions that we make and even accountable for the free will decisions that we make as we think. Not just actions, but the way we think. Our moral understanding goes very, very deep and is absolutely inseparable from our being because we're made in the image of God. So being made in the image of God in characteristics or personality, morality, the third one, spirituality. Human beings, according to the scripture, were made to have eternal communion or relationship with God. Back to the Westminster Confession. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The enjoy him forever means to be in relationship with, to find your ultimate joy in relationship, in communion with God. So we're created with spiritual possibilities. And we have the ability volitionally to worship the eternal God. The fourth area where we are like God is the area which you might call responsibility. We're given a responsibility as stewards of creation. Um, Most of you remember this psalm, but I want to read it for you to emphasize the point. Psalm 8, if you care to turn to that particular psalm, says something about the grandeur of the universe, but also about us. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Here's a stunning statement. When I consider your heavens, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You're above it all. 
And then, when I considered the heavens, the work of your fingers. Think of a finger and solar systems and galaxies and stars. When I think of the work of your fingers, they're at his fingertips. The moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. When I look at the grandeur of your universe, I say, what? Me? But you've made them a little lower than the angels. And you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild and the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your name is majestic in the earth. And your name is majestic because there are human beings, millions and millions of them all over your world, who are made in your image. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. We have a responsibility when we look at the created order around us. Not to use it up. Not to abuse it for any given reason. Not to use it selfishly. We are to use the created order for God and God's kingdom. Let's put it another way. The world does not revolve around us. We are not the center. God is the center. And it is our job as human beings to use the world to sing the praises of God. We are like someone who is pointing away to the divine creator when we exercise authority over the earth. Think about that and ask how it might recalibrate the way you think about the earth. It should. The final thing I want to say about the image of God and uh, how it is reflected in us is two words. It's reflected in human dignity. Human dignity. Now, this one goes all kinds of different directions, doesn't it? See, our contemporary worldview endorses two radical extremes. One is that we're nothing. We're accidental. We simply evolved randomly. And the other in the same breath, is that we who have randomly evolved from nothing are somehow individual gods. 
We're so self-absorbed that we're all there is. How in the world those two extremes can be embraced by one individual is beyond me, but we do. Our world speaks that way all the time. If you want an illustration of the way our world says we are made out of nothing and have no purpose, I'll just give you three. One from a scientist, one from a philosopher, and one from a person you know as a literary person. First, the scientist says the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. In other words, get God out of the picture. Carl Sagan. A philosopher says that man... Now listen to this one carefully because the language is a little funny. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are all but the outcome of accidental collection of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. Bertrand Russell. One more quote. Ernest Hemingway suggested that all, all was nothing, and man was nothing too. Now, if you were to contrast those statements with what we just read in Genesis 1, is there a bigger gap between them? Genesis 1 says we were created in the image of God and there we find our identity. These philosophers, these scientists, these literary famous people say it's all random. And it has led to us trying to create our own individual meaning within ourselves. We've got it backwards if we're doing it that way. Now, quite frankly, most people, even though they may not be Christian, when they hear words like this, they just kind of want to push back against meaninglessness, right? Who wants meaninglessness? We long for deep understanding and meaning in life, so we push back against it. And perhaps, just perhaps, we push back against it because... We intuitively know that we were created in the image of God. If you want to know what I think, that's what I think. Why, even if you're not a believer, do you intuitively push back against the meaninglessness? Because the image of God is within you no matter whether you believe it or not. You were created 
in God's image. And you know one of the revelations of that that sometimes comes along? It goes something like this. When we encounter inexplicable evil, things that just blows our mind, like the killing of children, we often use the phrase, that's not even human. Why? Because we think humanity can't be that bad. We think humanity ought to reflect something else. Intuitively, we think humanity ought to reflect the goodness of God. Perhaps. Perhaps that's why we say it. So after that, let me... um, Hopefully make a couple of practical statements concerning how we are supposed to reflect the image of God. I I first begin with an illustration. Not long ago, there was this unbelievably beautiful, bright, full moon. Some of you may have seen it. I saw it at night coming home from a meeting. I saw it in the morning when I was going to work. It was just stunning. And it was one of those nights that you didn't need light. You know, no street lights, no flashlights were necessary. You could just walk by the light of the moon. And when you look up at that moon, you think to yourself, the light of the moon. It's brilliant tonight. Now, I know you realize that what you have just said might not be exactly accurate, right? The moon was just the same. Six weeks earlier. The reason it's bright is because it reflects the sun. It doesn't have light on its own. It's in, shall we say, outer darkness. But when the light shines on it, it illuminates our world. So hold that image for a moment and then ask the question, How do we, or should we, reflect the image of God to our world? The first way I would suggest is imitation. Jesus, actually quoting from Leviticus, tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and those listening in, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect like the Father. Reflect the image of God. Now, at first glance, that looks like an impossible task, doesn't it? Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect? How in the world? But if you take a look at the context, at least part of it becomes more understandable. It's in the context of unconditional love for others. It's actually about loving your enemy. It's actually about turning the other cheek. And when Jesus is giving this description of how we ought to live, he says, and here's how, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. 
You know what Jesus might have said? Watch me, and I will show you how the Father in heaven is perfect. Watch me walk to the cross and take the abuse for your sin and every other sin that will ever exist in the world. Watch me turn the other cheek. Watch me die. Then you'll see the perfect image of the Father. So my friends, how are we called? To reflect the image of God. We're called to reflect the image of God the way God in Christ loved us. First is imitation. You could go a lot of places with that, couldn't you? Second way we reflect the image of God is renewal. Paul says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, I'm going to insert something into Paul's statement. What I want you to do, Paul says, is to rethink what personal identity is all about. Here's some specific verses. In Ephesians chapter 4, that relate to this. You were taught, says Paul, with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. The old self is basically focusing on self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires because you're going to do stupid things when you focus on self alone. Count on it. You will. which is corrupted by deceitful desires. And I want you to be made new in the attitude of your mind. This goes back to responsibility. We have a responsibility, not just to act, but to think. To think the way God wants us to think. Be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want you to renew your mind, says Paul, so that you can more accurately reflect the image of God. Third word is humility. Again in Ephesians, this time Chapter 1. Well, you probably have this one memorized. It's by grace. You've been saved. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God. So don't even think about boasting. Don't even think about boasting in your own righteousness. Don't even think about boasting in the way in which you reflect God. Stop the boasting already. You've been saved and you're challenged to be transformed, but don't speak of it as if you are somebody. Just be somebody. Be the image of God.
that, that's so hard to do, isn't it? Because once we receive our salvation, once we're called to be sanctified, the thing that slips in in our effort towards sanctification is pride. We feel better now about ourselves. We're called to be perfect like God was perfect, the Father, and so we're trying to do that. And we see everybody around us and we think, they're not trying to do that. First of all, maybe they are. Second of all, it's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to reflect the image of God and allow others to see it. The final word is um, how we reflect the image of God is glory. I think the uh, most difficult part for me about contemporary self-understanding and seeking meaning within ourselves is that we're actually going completely backwards. Because the purpose of a person who's created in the image of God is not to focus on self, but to focus and glorify God with self. There's this wonderful doxology that I rarely read at the end of the service that Paul... um, puts together in, in Romans chapter 11, right near the end, he's, he's just been relishing in the grace of God and the beauty that God is bringing it all together. And finally, he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given God that God should repay them for from him? And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. We've been given a responsibility that is the baseline of our identity if we're following God and that is to reflect the image of God in our world. I end with uh, this illustration. I, I look out at many of you who are parents, some of you who are grandparents and great-grandparents, and um, I know you've experienced this. I remember experiencing it for the first time with my, my first child, which was David. I I realized as I was looking at him that he was looking out the corner of his eye at me. And he was trying to look like me. He was trying to stand like me. He was trying to shout or say things like me. And I was delighted and I also wanted to run away and hide. 
because I didn't want him to always look like me and act like me. But it's natural that he should. I now have a grandson through David. Not yet. David hadn't seen this in his son. But eventually he'll see it. That little boy named Teddy is going to start looking out of the corner of his eye at his dad. And he's going to try to be like him. And what I want to say and apply it to God is how we ought to reflect his image. Even with my son and my grandson, there's something that's just absolutely natural about it. You know, there's nothing that my son did that made him look like me. Sometimes there's ways in which he had no control over the fact that he acted like me and had some of the same mannerisms. It's, it's genetic. That's the natural part of it. But there's something else. There's natural and there's cultivated. The cultivated part of it is up to us. The cultivated part of it for Teddy, my grandson, is to follow his father's example to be a godly man in his family, in his community, at his university. And I hope he'll glance out of the corner of his eye and say, what can I do? To be like dad. So there's the question for the week. What can we do to imitate our Father in heaven? Let's pray. Lord, for the grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you that Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, was not just sort of the reflection of the Father. He was the perfect reflection of the Father. And really, Lord, if we need something that we can understand, there it is. We can look to Jesus We can ask you to help us think like Jesus. We can ask you to help us act like Jesus so that we could imitate our Heavenly Father. Thank you for that gift. May we utilize it well. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.